Hey everyone, thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. A sermon about the life of a king named David and the truths we can take from it on living a meaningful life ourselves. Before it plays, I want to update you on two things. First, we have built a new website to serve as a central hub for our church. The site is creekside.me and on it you can subscribe to our newsletter, sign up for an event, donate money, and even let us know how God has used this sermon to impact you. The other thing that I want to let you know about is that our sermon videos are now available on our website. If you'd rather watch this sermon than listen to it, just visit wilsonville.church David. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well... Today we cover the story in the life of David that you all know already, and that is the story of David and Goliath. Before we get to it, I just want to say that we all like the story of David and Goliath, even when we're kids. This is my Goliath toy from when I was a kid. I had a Springer Spaniel. If you ever had a Springer Spaniel, you'll know why he's also missing a leg, not part of the story of David and Goliath. Um, but you know how oftentimes like Christian subculture stuff is just a lamer version of like the cool toy that you wanted, but you were a Christian, so it didn't work out as a kid. Not this, because watch what happens. His head comes off. (laughs) How incredible is that? I'm pretty sure in my battles growing up that most of the time it was not David who beat him up. It was a G.I. Joe. Uh, But eventually Goliath would just lose his head. And you know, just leave this up here for the remainder of the sermon. Um, You know that, that the story ends in the story of David and Goliath with David chopping off a giant's head because he's just hit him with a slingshot and killed him. And this story is used and has been used throughout history, uh, as I said last week, to be like the, the epitome of an underdog winning the game, beating the giant, all of those things. I mean, at the end of every March Madness upset game, I think that they end with that line, David has slayed Goliath. And it's like, oh, yeah, we know that story, right? But I think that, that the problem for us is that while we really like the story as a motivational technique, we really uh, like to think about how we who feel like underdogs can really overcome and conquer the giants of our lives and do incredible things for God. Uh, we also learn at a young age that it just doesn't happen sometimes, right? I mean, you can run into a battle any kind of battle you want to choose, right? And you come in there and you think, I'm David and they're Goliath and I'm going to win and I trust that this is going to happen. And then you you just miss with the little stone coming out of your slingshot, you know, hopefully not uh, in a literal sense. But, you know, and then you miss again and you miss again. And if David had five smooth stones, like you're like, I just missed with all of them. And what happened here, because David conquered Goliath, and then we say, like, do I have enough faith? And well, what's my problem? Was it that I, you know, I didn't trust God enough? Or is it that, uh, you know, really David was just talented? And, and, and what what is this? story really about if if it doesn't actually matter to my life because we know right like I hope we all know that in most cases in the history of the world I think I can say this 
David would have charged the giant and the giant would have just stabbed him and then the story would have ended, right? I mean, that's kind of how the world works most of the time. Like the guy who is stronger, the force that is greater, it just usually comes out on top. It's just the way that it, that it works. I've played two soccer games in the last two weeks and, and this week we lost, we lost nine, eight to seven had a goal go in off my hand. I'm playing goalie off my hand with a minute and a half left that I'm still recovering from and didn't go to bed early enough because I was thinking about it. But last week, we played this team. I mean, it was like they had 10 Pele's on their team. Like, it's the only soccer player, I think. I named Christian Ronaldo. There's two. Uh, I mean, it was like just a team full of all-stars and we're in the bottom rec league and I was playing goalie and it was pretty much like having a ball kicked at your head for 45 minutes. And, th- and there was no chance Our faith in ourselves or anything, even God, was not going to help us win the game. 14 to 2 we lost, if you were wondering. I mean, it was not going to happen. And that's that's the same in a lot of things in life, right? Like, like, God, I I just, I I trust you. And and this person seems like they'll never become a Christian, but I'm going to tell them about you and you're going to become a Christian. And then people don't. Like, what happened there? Or God, I'm going to be courageous at work about my faith and be more open. And then you get fired. It's like, this, this is not David and Goliath. This is something else. But here's, uh, here's the bad news for you. I, I firmly believe, and I've believed for a long time, that the story of David and Goliath is not the story of an underdog winning but it is a story about how we can have an impact in our lives. This very, the very thing this series is about. We can live a meaningful life, even if sometimes the giant slays us. I think that's what's at the heart of this story. And I want to look at it today, and we're, we're going to see, uh, I think, that there's just these two themes that come out that allow for David to be the one who slays the giant, but also, I think allows for us to take a step towards being the people, being a person that can live a life that has an incredible impact. And I think that we'll see in these principles that we'll take from this story that we'll see pretty clearly in my mind in this story, that even if David would have been killed by Goliath, it still would have been an incredible and impactful story for us years later. Now, you know pretty much like Maybe two parts of the story if you grew up in church, like David tries on armor. I had that on some cartoon or something as a kid, super Christian. Um, but also, you know about the David slinging the slingshot and swinging the slingshot, however you say that, and then killing Goliath. But there's like, a, there's a surrounding part of the story, and it, it actually tells us what the story is about, I think, and it's, it's fairly interesting. And, and this is how it starts. In 1 Samuel 17, uh, verses 1 through 3 is where we'll start if you want to read along. Now, the Philistines, that's one of the biggest enemies for the Israelites. People. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. I practiced that. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. 
So we live in a, in a valley here. I mean, it's pretty uh, clear to be able to illustrate this, right? You just have to look east and west and you see a valley. And, and so just kind of shrink that down in your mind. Smaller valley, two hills on the side. There's kind of like a, a creek bed that runs through the middle. That's what they tell us. Uh, and I think you can still see this today. Uh, and so this creek bed kind of creates this other kind of barrier between the two. And it creates this environment where the Philistines are sitting on this hill and the Israelites on this hill and and they're not idiots they're like if we go down there then we get killed so we're all just going to stay up on our hill because you don't want to lose the high ground in a battle right I mean that just makes sense and so so the the two armies are just hanging out on the hills I was just going to set that up for you without anything else but while I was actually backstage I just I just thought like uh, about Christians. I don't know why this popped into my head, but maybe God wanted me to tell you this, so I'm, I'm just going to say it because I think this illustrates something that I hadn't even thought of when I wrote the words on the sermon. But I think it illustrates one of the ways that Christians think that they can make an impact that's just flat out wrong. Uh, they think, well, you got those non Christian, unbeliever people over on that hill, and we'll just hang out on our hill. And we'll have an impact over here, singing our songs, having our Christian toys, doing our thing, you know, and what an impact I'll have. But we see in the story that all the guys who stay on the hill, they don't make really any impact at all. We don't know most of their names. We only know the brothers of David's name and one captain because of their connection to David who actually makes a difference. And so I think maybe God just wants me to tell you that that if, if your plan for bringing glory to God, for making an impact in the world is just to hide on your hill because you're scared of what's on the other hill, uh, it's probably not going to work for you. You'll just be remembered as one of the guys that didn't slay Goliath, that didn't do anything good for the glory of God, that didn't live a life of impact. So there you have it. I think that might have been from God. Maybe it was just for one of you. But in 1 Samuel 17, 4 through 7, the story continues. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels his shield bearer went ahead of him you need no explanation to know that that sounds awesome um i mean just incredible i mean this guy he used to have all of it when he had his head um but uh my dog and so he had like the whole can't even get his head back on sorry goliath i mean the the whole like he had armor and he had two of these and the shield and my daughter finally just broke the rest of the shield uh but this part's accurate um he did have these feathery things history tells us about the philistines at the time but i mean just on on first glance on first reading of that you're like six thousand five hundred wow like i mean even if you don't equate it to pounds i mean it could have been like you know milligrams and and like oh that's not that big but but it's actually really quite impressive when you look at what history tells us about these things first of all i mean he was a champion which just means it's literally a man of the two middles weird idiom uh, for the jewish people but it was this idea of he is the chosen guy to go fight the other army's best fighter Uh, he's the champion of their army and so basically the idea and, and the reason that this story takes place is is they had this idea like hey we could just 
have a one-on-one fight to settle it. We don't need to stab each other a whole bunch, right? If your guy wins, then, then we'll come over to your side. And if, if, your, if our guy wins, we'll come over to your side. I, I'm pretty sure in the history of the world that never actually worked out, right? Because you're like, oh, your guy won. Here we come. Put us in prison. I'm pretty sure that that didn't ever actualize in the real world. But it's an interesting idea, right? I've often thought we could settle things with like North Korea by playing a game of chess and saying if, if we win, then, you know, you do what we want. And if you win, we'll do what you want. Not a good idea. But you know what I'm saying. But this is the plan. And, and for, for the Philistines, Goliath's their guy. I mean, just think about just how impressive that would be and how just, you know, scary that would be if America chose one guy and said, hey, you're our guy that's going to fight to the death. It would be like, don't mess with that guy, right? And, and on top of that, he's, he's huge. I mean, he's seven feet or ten feet tall. I know that's weird. Um, not seven to ten, but seven or ten feet tall. Uh, and that's because we don't exactly know how their measurements lined up with our measurements. But to put it in perspective for you, whether he's seven feet or ten feet tall, the average height of a Jewish male at the time would have been somewhere around five foot two. And so either way, I mean, a seven footer or a 10 footer, I mean, it's pretty much all the same once they get over six foot five at that point, right? Like, wow, that guy's giant. In fact, I was at Oktoberfest Friday night, oddly, and there was this guy who was huge, like Goliath size. He may have been 10 feet tall. And these people behind me like, that guy's huge. That's the first reason I noticed him. And then one of them is like, man, he's probably like six feet five and I'm like oh there's no that guy is not he's way bigger than six five you never hung out with the six five but at some point if you're not very tall like tall is tall right so seven feet ten feet when you're five foot two no big deal Goliath I mean pretty much right you're dead um and then Goliath uh just to to continue to show like I mean his coat weighed 126 pounds that's very, very large. I don't backpack because I don't want two pounds on my back, right? And so that's enough for me. These people with their hiking and their 50-pound bags makes no sense to me. Um, but this is what my wife's backpack generally weighs, or our diaper bag at this point, about 126 pounds. So if you want to know what that looks like, it's hiding under the table back there. His spear estimated to be about five feet long. I mean, he's basically throwing around an Israelite soldier. I mean, you know, like, whew, there you go. And then uh, the iron point on his spear, this just seems so heavy to me weighed 15 pounds can you imagine trying to hold up 15 pounds that's five feet away from your body it's just going to go like this for all of us that are in this room right now and so it's meant here in verses four through seven to basically say the details are unimportant basically say there's no chance for any of these israelite soldiers i mean this guy is a physical specimen it would be like me getting in a ring with Conor McGregor. If you don't know who that is, I can't help you. But I mean, it, it's a losing bat. How about Mike Tyson? He's more iconic. It's like me getting in the ring with that Mike Tyson. I'm going to get beat up. I'm going to die. And that will be it. It doesn't matter how skilled I am or anything. He's just going to punch me in the face and it's over. That's the point of this description here. And here's what Goliath's doing in verses 8 through 11. Goliath stood and shouted the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this is so key. Listen to this line. This is the forgotten part of the story of David and Goliath. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul 
And all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. In fact, it tells us in other verses, and I'm not going to read this morning, that they fled from, from uh, Goliath's words. The people are super scared. Probably be super scared too, but they're super scared. But the problem with them being super scared is that Goliath's taunt of this army is dishonoring to them. And if you were dishonoring to the Israelite people at this time, you were in fact dishonoring to God. You see, what Goliath is saying is not just making fun of a group of soldiers. To make fun of that group of soldiers who were led by God, who were battle-tested by God, who had won battles by the power and strength of God to defy them and to stand there and say, I defy the armies of the Israelites, was to stand there and say, ha, 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 you think you have a powerful God? We don't care. You see, Goliath isn't just taunting a group of people. He isn't just scaring these people. He is actually saying, your God is not even big enough to defeat me and my people. And the very fact that the Israelite men who were up there to fight that battle and Saul himself, who was actually supposed to be the one, according to God, that defeated the Philistines, the fact that they are so scared that they just kind of, eh, we'll hang out on the backside of the hill. The fact that they had this attitude showed that they were nothing like David they did not care or trust God and his power and his glory and in Leviticus 24 16 when we see how important this was to God I mean anyone who blasphemies the name of the Lord is to be put to death the entire assembly must stone them whether foreign or native born when they blaspheme the name they are to be put to death i mean you come in and you start talking bad about god in the israelite nation it was so serious and so dishonoring to god and so counter his glory that god put a rule in place that said look we can't have this in our country the death penalty is the punishment for this sin And so as Goliath stands down in that valley and looks up at this hill and says, I'll crush you. He's saying, I will crush you and your God. He's saying, I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in your God's power. I don't believe in this stuff. I defy it. And here comes David. He's hanging out with the sheep. He's not old enough probably to fight in the war, to be a soldier. And so he's back with the sheep and his dad said, hey, I need you to go and I need you to, uh, to take your brother some food and deal with some taxation stuff and find out how the battle's going. Weird way they fought war. I would not send my child over nowadays, right? Like, hey, just head over and tell me how things are going. All right, that's not how it works now, but that's, that's kind of the plan. And so, so David goes and he shows up at the battlefield and right as he's standing there, Goliath launches into one of these verbal attacks on the armies of Israel, on the army of Israel, and on really the living God. It's interesting that we see the the statement 40 days 
in, in this passage of Scripture because in the Bible, and if you've ever just read the Bible in a cursory way, you'll see 40 come up a lot. And, and, and really what's happening in this story is David marches to meet his brothers and to give them food and to follow his dad's directions. What we see is that, and this is a quote from, from an author, every detail is meant to underscore the human insignificance of David, but it's also meant to show that David is exactly where he needs to be, exactly when God wants him to be there. And there's two huge implications about this because we know how the story ends, so I can just talk about the implications as we go. I know that most of you on, a grand, on the grand scheme of things, you feel insignificant, right? But David is meant to be seen as absolutely 100% in a human way, totally and completely insignificant in this story. We know that he's been anointed king, but he has not become king. He hasn't done anything cool to this point of the story that we know about. He's this boy who was forgotten by his dad when a king was being selected by his children, and now he's got an anointing, and, but what does that even mean? And the Holy Spirit's come upon him, but like he's done nothing. He hasn't fought anybody. He hasn't done anything cool. I mean, he's just a shepherd boy from a city that nobody cares about that is actually in this story, by the way, being told by his dad what to do. You see the irony there? You see that, how, uh, how funny that almost is? Like he's being bossed around by his dad and he shows up exactly when God wants him to. I mean, and here's what happens. David asked the men standing near him in, in 1 Samuel 17, 26, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Notice that. And then this, this is so powerful. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David gets it, right? He's like, this isn't just about our army. This isn't about you feeling dishonored or disrespected or like a lesser man because you aren't stepping up to the challenge. This man's taunts. This uncircumcised Philistine, this person who does not serve the living God, but serves false gods, little idols made of stone, who is he to defy our God? So here's this insignificant kid, literally kid, showing up at perfect, at the right place perfect time and and I just see like man if you feel insignificant the story is not over for you but I also see in this I mean it's just so clear like like God puts us in certain places at certain times and you need to pay attention to that I would just ask like this question like what is it about your circumstance right now that maybe, just maybe, God has you in for a specific reason, for a specific purpose. But in this verse, verse 26, we see this just first, like, glimmer, the first really point, the first idea of what makes David a person that lives a significant life. Last week, we talked about God not looking at the outside, but looking at the inside. Well, here we get a glimpse at what's inside of David, what it means to be a man after God's own heart, and that is that he looks at this taunt and says, I cannot stand for God to be mocked. 
I want nothing more with my life than to bring honor and glory and worship to the living, true, real God that I serve. I'll tell you the first thing that stands between you and a life of significance is not whether life has called you insignificant by who you are or what family you were born into or the skills that you have, all the things we talked about in the sermon last week. The first thing that stands in the way of you and living a powerful life of impact is how much you actually care about God being honored on earth. Let's be real, most of us don't care that much, right? I mean, we want to care. We sing songs that seem to express some level of care. God, we want to see you lifted high and God be lifted up as I bow down. We sing that. It's one of my favorite songs. We're going to sing a song in a minute. Give me one pure and holy passion to know and fall and follow hard after you. But most of us, when we walk out of this place, frankly don't care about whether God is honored or not. We see it in our personal lives and the way that we live and how disobedient we are to God. And and we just don't care. I mean, it's not like we're accidentally or we're struggling or we're trying. We're just like, yeah, God, I kind of do what I want and I'll ask for forgiveness before we start singing on Sunday. I mean, we just don't care that much. And we see it in, in, in in the way we respond to people, right? Like somebody could walk up to you, make fun of God, uh, Use the Lord's name in vain. And, and really, I mean, if we're being honest, you probably don't care that much, right? You're like, I wish they wouldn't say that. I don't say it. But does it like just make you furious that somebody has made God's name a swear word? I mean, this God that you believe, if you're a Christian, has come to earth, died on a cross, been raised from death uh, so that you could be forgiven for sin? Does it like just make you so mad that somebody would turn his name into a swear word? Because it does David. It didn't the rest of the army. They were cool. They were scared. They were okay as long as they were hanging out on their holy hill, avoiding the people on the other hill. But David walks up and he is like, who is this guy? Who is this non-God-fearing person that he will have this attitude towards my living God, the one whom I serve and love with all my life? I'm just telling you, I mean, I know it's not what you want to hear. You just want to hear like, go get him. David slayed Goliath. But what makes David significant in this story is not that he slays Goliath, it's that he cares so passionately about God being honored and glorified. And if you, and and this is just, I'm just, it's so clear to me in this story, if, if you care more than anything else about God being honored, then you will begin to live a life of impact even if you don't slay any giants. In 1 Samuel 17, 32 through 37, it continues. David said to Saul, this is the king of the land. He walks up to the king, who by the way, if you you remember what I said last week, if you read about the beginning of Saul's kingly reign, it said he was a head taller than everybody else. So at least he's like six foot, six foot, seven foot. You got a fighting chance. I mean, he walks up to Saul, who's bigger and stronger and cooler than the rest of the people and says, hey man, remember, a kid, like a kid, He walks up to him, the king of the land, and says, hey, nobody lose heart. You guys don't have to be scared of this Philistine. Don't be scared. 
your servant, I'll go fight him. Saul replied, in the most Saul way, you are not able to go against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, notice this, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. This is so important. I mean, David just draws on past experiences and what God has done for him in the past. And it's cooler than than the things I've got to see God do for me. Uh, But if you're going to have a life of impact, then you must learn to trust God and we'll see the incredible trust of David in this story as we move forward. Uh, But you have to learn to, to look back sometimes on what God has done for you. I have these moments in my life that that make me bolder because I can look back and see times where God has talked to me, times where God has protected me, times where I've done things that by worldly standards were quite stupid because I wanted to see God honored and, and I'm, I'm alive still. And, and so I'm like, well, we'll try it again, you know. I mean, I, and so I have these things and, and David just looks back. He's like, well, God's never failed me before. So I'll go fight him. I'll go fight him. Learning to trust God in the seemingly insignificant times of life, I believe will help you to live an incredible life of impact and to face the difficulties that, that, that living a life of impact calls for. But we, I think so often when we are living normal life, we forget all of the things that God is doing in us to protect us and to provide for us. It's tough living in modern America today because like when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, pray that God will give you your daily bread, right? And we don't think about that. We have pantries to hold our extra food, right? And we have freezers that go in our garages to hold our extra food. And so the idea of waking up each day and and thinking about God providing food for us is so foreign to us. But I think if we could learn in the insignificant times of life, the normal times of life, to say, wow, God, I have a freezer full of food. Thank you. That maybe when we face bigger, scarier things, we could glorify God through them because we've already learned to trust God. And we've learned to rely on God. We've learned to look at God and say, you are the one who got me through. I mean, David, it would have been so easy to look at those times in his life and say, I got lucky. Glad that one worked out. And we do that, right? Like that seems crazy when it's a lion and a bear. But isn't that like you pray and you pray and you pray and then you think, wow, I'm glad that worked out. Not like, wow, God said yes to that prayer. That's incredible. Like I never thought that could happen, but God did it. And David wasn't like that. He just, he's like, I mean, I, he probably said a prayer as he was running towards the bear. I would. Uh, like, hey, God, help me. And then God did. And he didn't go, sweet, I'm tougher than I thought. He said, like, I, I, I was helped by God here. And so David's willing to fight this. And Saul, for a brief moment in time, gets it. Go and the Lord be with you. He knows what it's going to take for David to beat this giant. 
God must be with him. And then one of my favorite parts of the story as a kid, I don't know why, uh, but uh, I'm not going to read it to you, but David, then Saul says, hey, you need, some, you need some armor, man. I mean, look at that guy, right? And so Saul gives him, this is so weird to me, this scrawny little guy, uh, and then Saul, who's bigger than everybody, remember, he's like, you take my good armor. And he, he puts this armor on David, and David's like, I can't even walk in this stuff. What's happening? And I like, as a kid, I just liked that part of the story because I was a kid, and it's like, this makes sense. It's like putting on dad's clothes. You know, I mean, it just isn't going to work. And so David tries this stuff on, and, and, and then he's like, hey, not happening, man. And, and then he says, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch, in the pouch of a shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, approached the Philistine. You see, the problem for Saul, and this is the problem for most of his life, and this is why David is anointed king before Saul even knows about it, because Saul is failing as king, and he's failing in his disobedience to God. But really what much of that disobedience comes down to, the reason that Saul is not the one that lives this incredible life of impact, is because he trusted in himself too much. He trusted in the tangibles too much. He trusted in the things he could see and touch and, and think about in the world. I mean, he trusted in those things. And so it was like, God, I'll be fairly obedient to you. I'll kind of worship you. But we kind of need to do this too, you know? And here it is again, like, hey, God be with you, man. It's going to take God's power for you to win this. But also try the armor. Now, look, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, try to get better and to get a degree and to improve our skills and to become better communicators or whatever. You know, all these things. Like, we should, we should try to be doing our best for God, all that stuff. But we must understand that if we're going to live a true life of impact, it's going to come down to the work of God and nothing that we do. We just prayed this this morning. I just prayed this when we gather. We have two prayer times before we start church, and then there's a, a prayer time for not banned Chad people uh, that you can be a part of if you show up early, and we'd love for you to do that. But we, we gather for prayer like before the band starts practicing, and then again right before we start church. And, and the thing I prayed this morning, I wasn't thinking about the sermon at all, but the thing I prayed is like, God, hey, we're going to try to do this as best we can, but ultimately, like, it, it just won't have an eternal impact unless you do the work. And we just are so self reliant because we're. Americans and most of us good Americans and we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and and we say like I'll just work harder and we fall down I'll get back up and if I try a little harder come up with a little better plan then then I'll accomplish something great and David is like hey I'm pretty good with the slingshot but no way I'm winning this battle without the help of God and I'm telling you, I mean, I mean, I know I'm saying all these things about David's heart, and, but this is one of them. This is like one of the things. Like, you must be a person who says, like, I need you, God, if I'm going to accomplish what I think you want me to accomplish. And then 1 Samuel 17, 41 through 44, meanwhile, the Philistine with the shield bearer in front of him, he had a second guy. That's cheating, by the way. I just, Goliath is a cheater. Like, you can't come out there with a second guy. That just does not make sense to me, how he got away with that. He set up this deal, and then he cheated. I'm sorry, it just bothers me. Uh, meanwhile, the Philistine with the shield bearer in front of him, 
kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. See, for David, this isn't personal. This is theological. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. This is not a conversation about David and David's strength and David's ability and, and how good looking David is still because he hasn't been beat up, beat, up enough time, beat up enough times in battle. This is about whose God is stronger. The fake false God to the Philistines or the true living God of the Israelites. I mean, who, who is stronger? Let's just, let's just get it out there. Who is stronger? The real living God or some false God? Who is stronger? Think about this because this is where we really get hung up. We don't think about false gods a lot. Who is stronger, God or the people that you fear? The people that cause the hang-up, that cause you to not run into battle, that cause you not to do anything for the glory of God. Who do you really believe is stronger? I'm going with God. I think I'm right. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. <laughs> this is so good. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Man, isn't that incredible? I mean, just, it's just, it's a, that's powerful to me. Like, he's just looking out and he's like, hey, I don't, it doesn't say like, I'm not that handsome, you know? I mean, like, I'm not that scrawny. He's not offended by these personal insults. He's like, you don't come out here and mock my God. Because what's about to take place will show you that there is, I love that, that there is a God in Israel. And I just wonder if we care again about the glory of God so powerfully and passionately that when we live our lives, our goal is to say, look, when you look at my life, I want you to know that there is a God in here, that God indwells me. When you live your life, do you go, I want people to know that there is a God that exists in our church or, or, or there is a God who exists in the universe. I mean, there is a God. Is that like the cry of your heart? Because if it isn't, you're just going to hang out on the hill and not do anything that's impactful. I mean, David understands this incredible truth. It's not about the sword or the spear. It's the Lord that saves for the battle is the Lord's. And he slings this slingshot and he hits Goliath. Two views on that, by the way. Interesting note. One is that he hits him in the head, which is what I grew up with. The other is that he hits him in the leg somewhere and he just, the guy just goes down and then he just chops his head off while he's still alive. Interesting side 
No, maybe. Uh, but he kills Goliath. None of you cared except for me. I just thought that was super interesting. It changed the whole story, but you didn't care. David kills Goliath. He cuts off his head. And there's two things. Now, just tell me. Just answer me. Like, let's be, just, just really think about this now. Do you think God would have been glorified and the, the world would have been impacted if David would have just been stabbed? I think so. I mean, can you imagine the power that that would have instilled in the other people who were behind him? I mean, if David ran out there, little kid, I'm doing this, you don't defy my God. I would have been like, you just can't help but see somebody do something so passionate, right? Without saying, I want to be passionate like that too. I don't think it matters that David wins here because ultimately this army was going to get up and fight behind this courageous leadership because this boy had such two things, ready? One, passion for the glory of God and two, insanely strong trust in God. And I'm telling you, sometimes Goliath won't fall, sometimes he will. But if you, are, if you care more about everybody knowing that God is real and God exists and God is loving and God is good than you do about anything else, and you trust God that even if you die, he has you in his hands, I just don't think there's any way that you can't live a life of impact. It doesn't matter if you're successful in the world's eyes. I just envision no, in no way, I envision in no way that that army stands up there and can even watch David get slayed through as he's taunting a giant that's four feet taller than him, five feet taller than him and go, it's too bad, I'm not going down there. It's like every great battle scene in the history of the world. Like somebody says, I don't care about me. I will sacrifice for us. Mel Gibson in the movie, We Are Soldiers. We Were Soldiers. We Are Soldiers. Something about soldiers. One of the most underrated Mel Gibson movies, in my opinion. He gives this incredible speech at the beginning to this, this group of men that's about to go fight. And he says, look, I can't promise you I'll bring you home alive, but I can promise you I will be the first one on the battlefield and the last one off. And you see him at the beginning of their time in war take a step off of a helicopter before all of his troops. And, and at the very end, he looks back over the battlefield where lots of men have just given their lives. And he, you can see nobody else is left living and he steps back onto the helicopter. You're like, I'd fight behind that, right? I mean, I would fight with somebody that has that mentality. And David is so passionate about the glory of God. And he trusts him so much with his life that there was no way, win or lose, he was not going to live an incredible life of impact. And I'm telling you, if you say, look, okay, Chad told me it's not about what's on the outside, it's about what's on the inside, that's great. But what needs to be on the inside? Two things. You need to care more about the honor of God than you do about yourself or about uh, moving forward in life or your family or anything. You need to care more about the honor of God and you need to trust God with everything. And if you do, you live an incredible life of impact. There's this other action figure that hangs out in my home now. 
We have another smaller version that would have made it more, you know, realistic next to Goliath because I don't think Moana was a giant. Uh, but Hazel's already lost the clothes and she was more inappropriately, uh, you know, clothed underneath her clothes than Goliath here. Uh, and so, so I didn't bring her, but this is Moana. Did you turn it off? Come on, Hazel, figure it out. There you go. Uh, that had nothing to do with the sermon, but I just wanted you to know that this is Moana. And uh, so Moana's the favorite of my daughter right now, and uh, there's nothing good about it theologically. So you know, as Christians, we don't believe in demigods or a plurality of gods or anything like that. But there is, there's this scene, and I didn't like the movie the first time we saw half of it before Hazel and Hudson got tired. Uh, but when we watched the whole thing the other day, there's this, this incredible scene that was so David-like. And, and, I, and I think it, it it's so you and I like when it comes to whether or not we will live a life of impact. And, and so just quickly, if you don't know the story, like she's called by the ocean to, to go out and, and find this demigod named Maui and to bring him back to her island of Tahiti, as she already explained to you. Um, and, and so she goes, but the plan kind of fails. She feels this calling into the ocean. She knows she's not supposed to stay on the island. She wants to go. She wants to do something incredible. And then she does because of her grandma, which is an incredible influence. And her grandma's on her deathbed and she just jets out of the ocean. She's like, I'm doing this thing. And it doesn't work. She doesn't slay Goliath. It's like a failed plan. And so she's standing on this little raft boat and she has a vision of her dead grandma comes a stingray told you we don't theologically agree with it and and the grandma says hey i'm sorry i put so much on you you can go home if you want to go home and i don't know i'm getting teary-eyed about moana who does that in most families it's the little kid asking to hear the song over and over i've been asking to hear the moana song over and over like hazel let's listen to moana not mommy's song uh but but she stands on the edge of this boat and this grandma says, what's the hesitation? And then Moana just all of a sudden understands. Like, it's not about the call out there. It's about this thing inside me, this passion inside me. Your grandma says, do you know who you are? And then she says, who am I? I am the girl who loves my island. I'm the girl who loves the sea. It calls me. I'm the daughter of the village chief. We are descendants from voyagers who found their way across the world. And the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide always falling and rising. And I think the question for you and I, as we stand in front of an ocean or stand in front of giants, is whether or not inside of us we are passionate about the glory of God. Moana, Moana was able to succeed in the story because she wanted to. She wanted to make a difference. And the whole time she thought it was the external circumstances and everywhere I go, no matter what, I, I always end up kind of thinking about all that stuff out there. But at the end, she gets it. It's this. It's inside of her. She wants to save her village. She wants to be faithful to the descendants that have come before her. And I think so many of us stand, like I said, in front of giants. 
And we stand in front of an ocean of opportunity to live a life of impact. And we just don't care to do it. And we say, well, if I had the ability or the gifts or, you know, if I could hear a clear voice in my head, if, if things were a little bit different, then, then I would make a difference. But if you will develop in your soul a passion for the glory of God, remembering, and this is what drives me, this is why I pastor, this is why I care, this is why I ran a homeless ministry for two years, this is why I was willing, in one of those stories that I mentioned earlier but didn't tell, to walk into trees to feed homeless people, even though I didn't know if I would come back out. It's because I am a wretched human being, and I understood that when I was 17 years old for really the first time, and I just was like, wow, there's a, a God who came to earth, and he died for me, and I can have forgiveness, and I can have peace, and I can have love, and I can look forward to a future in heaven with the loved ones who have gone before me, and, and, and inside of me, this trigger just kind of just switched. It's like, I, I got I to spend my life trying to glorify this God who has done all of this for me. And in Moana, they carry this song throughout. In the song, uh, one of the key lines of the song is, as they're, they're looking out of the ocean because they don't leave the island, and no one knows how far it goes. And in the last refrain of that song, she realizes that really the desire is what's going to allow her to be successful. And her, her desire for an impact to do something great for her villagers is what's going to allow for her to live a meaningful life. She says, and now I know how far I'll go. And I think none of you, I think some of you have no idea how far you can go as far as impacting this world for the glory of God because yet to this point you have not cared and you have not trusted God. But if you will wake up each morning and say, God, give me one pure and holy passion. You, give me one pure and holy passion, you. And God, as I walk through this day and, and I try to make decisions that bring you honor and glory, help me to trust you. Then I think you'll go further than you ever imagined as far as living a life of impact. And I can tell you this, I think that's what happened for David. I think David probably woke up each day. We know this from some of the Psalms. said, God, I love you. Make this about you. Help me to live for you. And one day he woke up and his dad said, go feed your brothers. The next thing he knew, he was conquering a giant for the glory of the same God that he had woken up every day and said, God, help me to love you and live for you and help me to trust you. I'm telling you, you think you're insignificant, David was insignificant. But I believe you have been placed where you are for a reason and the only thing that stands between you and incredible impact is you making a decision to live solely and only for the glory of God and to trust that he will take care of you even when the giants don't fall. Let me pray. Lord, I just ask that we would be people who impact you and impact the world in incredible ways for you, God. I pray, God, that we would all, even this morning, have the moment where we stand on the edge of our boats, where we stand on our hill, God, and we say, man, do I really just want to stay here? 
Or do I actually want to make an incredible impact for God? And I pray this morning, Lord, that at least some would make a decision to say, wait a minute, I want to glorify God because I realize how much he's done for me. Lord, I pray that every person here and every person who will listen online would understand how much you have done for us. I pray that every person would accept your incredible gift of salvation, God. You dying and rising again so that we could have forgiveness for sins and and, and a new life, a brand new life that will last in holy perfection for eternity. And out of that decision, God, to accept that gift, I pray that all of us, Lord, would want nothing more than to glorify you and all of us, God, would trust you no matter what life brings. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.